this is Joy Gilfillan, host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences, discussed for taxpayer education, and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice podcast, and I'm here with Debbie David, a person who's been studying what's happening with the trauma-informed workplace world. What does that mean? Who are we and how can becoming trauma-informed help you both at pers- in your personal lives at work and in the law and justice world? Welcome to the call, Debbie. Thanks, Joy. I'm really happy to be here today. And I'm so excited to be able to bring forward this information that I think matters to each and every one of us, actually, even if we may not um, be employed away from home, because we do have a lot of families that are, you know, mom or and or dad are the at-home caregiver, or um, they might be caregiving a adult that's needing TLC because they have an illness. But this is just something that can help us in our daily lives, no matter what we engage in. So I'm so excited about it. I think it's also so extremely important when we're looking at the the law and justice system, when we're looking at people who are dealing with substance abuse issues, domestic violence, law enforcement officials, first responders, people who are dealing with trauma in the courtroom. I mean, trauma comes at us these days from many, many different directions. Talk to us about what does trauma-informed mean? How did you get connected to even looking at this? And what is the latest news out there about this subject? Well, that's a really good question, and I will do my best um, to bring forward what I've had, uh, I've encountered. And actually, the whole um, subject of trauma has is somewhat misunderstood because in past years, trauma mostly was around a what might be a physical experience, a trauma where you're in a car accident and you have physical injuries mm-hmm. um, or you, you know, were rollerblading and you fell down and you broke your ankle or whatever. And so, yes, that's a physical trauma. What, how it's being used in present day and has been for at least, I'd say over a decade. And actually since it was the nineties, when the um, ACEs adverse childhood experiences study was first brought forward, we're actually looking at more like three decades because in that study, it became very clear that what children experience from uh, birth to age 18 has a direct correlation to their physical and mental health Um, as adults. Uh, It also correlates to their risks, factors for having 
dependencies on things like cigarettes, alcohol, other substances. And so in this questionnaire that was developed by Dr. Um, Felitti in the Kaiser Permanente study, Vincent Felitti was his name, in uh, California, they followed a few thousand of their employees over a period of years to see um, how the impact of their early childhood experiences, what effect that had on their adult lives and their well-being. It even increased a high number on your 10-question adverse childhood experiences study, and you can get up to 10 out of these 10 questions, but anyway. One with a risk or a number of childhood experiences that was over four could actually that increase their risk for um, relationship breakups or even pr- trouble with the law. I mean, the the predictive factors were amazing that they were able to put together in this study. So, sure, and it's all connected also to depression and mental health issues and mm-hmm. substance abuse issues and domestic yep. violence and everything else. Like It was like there was a direct correlation, mm-hmm. as I recall reading through this information. That's correct. That's correct. And so to an extent that this brought forward awareness, the impact that these experience, early childhood experiences can have – Then they wanted to, as they studied it further, wanted to look at how to mitigate um, what those traumas were. I mean, the awareness comes first that, yes, you had these experiences. Now, how do they impact you? Now, what can we do to heal some of these um, traumatic experiences? And, and look at how that impacts your life in the present day. So, Well, the thing that's interesting is I started looking at some of this stuff and I was looking at the dominator effect, you know, not the dominator effect, the um, domino effect. Mm-hmm. Like, it's interesting, Debbie, because when I was looking at some of this information, I was looking at it at the domino effect and the ripple effect of things. And when we started looking at generational trauma, how different kinds of trauma can compound over time. And you, you have a something that happens and it skews the way you react and then something else happens and it skews the way you react. And before long, there's a cascading effect called the domino effect. And that's partly what you're talking about here. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and what what is at the root of all of that is that it occurs in relationship. And, and as I referenced, the early childhood experiences, those things occur in relationship with your family or caregiver environment. So it's about getting your need met during those early years. And actually, Dr. Gabor Matei talks a lot about this in his um, multiple writings, but his most recent was um, published a year ago last September, um, The Myth of Normal, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture. So he very specifically looks at um, how those childhood experiences manifest in our adult lives and we 
do have certain behaviors, engage in certain behaviors to try to either feel better or uh, sometimes we're not even aware that we are doing, we're doing, especially in addiction, that what pain we're trying to numb um, in addiction situations. And always it comes back to something that there's good, there's big T trauma and little T trauma. The big T trauma are the things that are more visible, like um, intentional physical abuse, um, intentional neglect, like not feeding your children because that's how you discipline them if they misbehaved. The little T traumas are things like you had a, a need that was unmet, that was not intentional, such as a child needed comforting rather than scolding after a situation, and instead they they didn't get that need met. Um, they didn't. They weren't comforted. They were punished in a certain way that didn't help them process through whatever they needed to learn in that situation. So, um, all of us have these areas in our lives that until we do intentional investigation and and look into our our personal individual family history and intergenerational as you man- mentioned earlier um that we we just don't know what we don't know so uh, so why don't we take a quick break here and i'd like you to think about how this applies directly to first responders like often we're taught that we're supposed to just buck up and when you see something that's horrific you don't take it on personally i know that i've heard recently that one of the things that we're not supposed to do if you're an airplane pilot for example and you have um, a catastrophe or your airplane crashes you can't go get help for it because if you do you can actually lose your license So there's things that we are taught that we're supposed to just be strong and avoid talking about. Let's talk about that relative to police officers and relative to first responders who are first at the scene or people who are dealing with an escalating situation in a in a family domestic violence case and you have to show up and do that. So let's come back just a minute and have Debbie give us some ideas about how this trauma informed knowledge can help people who are working on the in the front lines are you a member of patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts as a patron you can support the production of the i change justice podcast series you can also support the restorative community coalition get our news updates and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis welcome back debbie talk to us about trauma in the workplace, people who are at on the front line of high-risk jobs. Yes, Joy, that is an area where we do not um, do a good job helping those that are in very traumatic situations and circumstances be able to debrief afterwards. Um, People that are on the front lines, firefighters, police officers, uh, emergency room professionals dealing with escalated situations of immediate care needed in order to save someone's life. It, those individuals are on a regular basis 
um, engaging in circumstances that put them in a fight or fl- re- f- fight or flight response, which is a trauma reaction. And although they receive some training on how to work through that and maintain some calm during the time that they're engaging in whatever activity they're trying to remediate, after the fact, there's very little support. For example, they go home after a long day of dealing with um, people that got in an argument because they crashed into each other, their cars and had an accident. Well, yeah, it's an accident. Well, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. These things call a lot of agitation inside of all of us, even those that are witnessing the the situation, which um, officers, they're, they're exposed to, um, they call it tertiary, tertiary trauma. They weren't in the accident, but because they were present during interactions between the people who were involved, it's a secondary to secondary trauma. Well, and so, often those people are not allowed to actually talk about it. They're they're restricted by confidentiality rules to not talk to other people oftentimes. So you end up in these situations, you feel the impact, but you can't talk about it. You can't, what I say is outgas it. You know, there's no pop-off valve for you to let the emotions out safely. So it gets mm-hmm. bottled up. Yeah. It's a, it's like a pressure cooker and they, they'll often, and I very much honor and support and and gratitude for the service of the men and women who are first responders in uh, law enforcement and firefighting, emergency medical professionals, etc. And so I want to make sure that that's said before I go into what's next, because what can happen without adequate support and debriefing after a long day of dealing with this all day is there are occurrences where they go home and they might off gas to family and and children. And Mm -hmm. often it's a reactionary thing where they may not even be aware until after it happens and then feel, oh my gosh, what was that? Um, Yeah. And their family and their family can't come back and say, why'd you come after me? Because they don't know. And there's no way out from it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, one of the the quotes from this particular um, trauma-informed workplace toolkit that will be shared in the link with this broadcast um, was from the chair and founder of an organization called Creating Presence. And I really liked it because it, it addresses all people what regardless of what line of work they're in but she said trauma-informed workplaces offer a sanctuary of safety and support a place where people can bring their whole selves and be valued for who they are now what that means to me how i interpret it is it's you have a network of people that you work with in doing maybe similar things or in supportive roles of whatever your job is and that you can be a human. You can maybe have be struggling that day, and another a coworker can observe that and say, "How are you doing today? Is there some way I can, you know, would you like to talk? What, whatever. I mean, this is the kind of of occurrence that if we were 
allowed to function as a society that and us and were structured so that we could have opportunities for growth for sharing and not be um, kind of boxed away where this is my role and my, my role requires me to be stoic and suck it up and not let my guard down because I'm you know strong and I you know and they they don't really allow any feelings to come forward so it's an unnatural um, situation where they can't really be who they are because there's this uh, persona that they have to project as a part of you know whatever type of work they're doing um, and that what that leads me into talking about is that in the 30s a physiologist named Walter B. Cannon he started to describe a hypothetical society that's modeled after the human body and that in our human bodies, different cells are organized into like your heart and your kidneys and your liver, and they cooperate in this dynamic engagement. And so in a in that living system like our bodies, it's that living system can become ill, but it also can recover. And so having this perspective, it it puts value on the importance of nurturing the health and vitality of the organization, whether it's, you know, in government or private corporation or it's our first response responders. So it puts the focus on the health and vitality of individuals and the group at large rather than the productivity or financial performance. So, so this is especially important when we're talking about dealing with the kinds of traumas that we have today, where we've got economic, social, civic, many different kinds of things that have come in the aftermath of the last few years. And when we're dealing with um, global trauma, like we're dealing with as people are worried about global war. I mean, these are all different kinds of emotional stressors. And in the beginning, you just think they're stress or duress or, you know, there's just something mm-hmm. that you dealt with and and yet it may show up later as mm-hmm. as the aftermath of whatever happened actually kicks into your body and you end up with things like migraine headaches or you end up with illness or you end up with depression and no one knows where that came from exactly and that's also what it's how dr gabor talks about um, illness and healing in his recent book that I referenced earlier is that if we're not able to recognize the impact of the events in our lives, um, often stemming from childhood, but also continuing on in our adult lives when there's con- ongoing stressors and new stressors that we never experienced, um, it definitely un- unhealed, unrecognized, untreated unremediated manifests into potential physical illness, mental illness, um, and also a risk for addiction because we're trying to numb whatever that is, or we're trying to, uh, for some people, alcohol helps them be more social. Maybe they're dealing with anxiety and they're feeling repressed, whatever it might be. So um, if, if we engaged in a, a biocratic type of culture, it promotes 
um, ongoing learning and development, and it, 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 and also innovation and continuous improvement. And so, when you have that approach, it falls, fosters a sense of shared responsibility among the team members, and that prom- promotes the sense of them wanting to work together towards a common goal. Well, you also use this a lot when it comes to de-escalation. If you're in a situation and people are escalating violence or escalating a, um, you know, an emergency situation and people start to escalate, understanding trauma-informed solutions can help you to de-escalate. I seem to, you know, one of the reasons I invited you to be on the call is that you were working with a client recently Mm -hmm. that had some of this going on. Can you tell us a little bit of a story about how this helped you? Yes. So this client actually, this client's original training was uh, the de-escalation techniques in working with adults. Um, And the the practice that is involved in working with adults, which it's a transferable skill. Once you know how to do this type of it's a behavior that you personify yourself. So it's it's more about your internal and external actions than you're not actually in control of that other person you're trying to de- de-escalate. You're only in charge of and in control of yourself. So mm-hmm. the, the, it's about centering. It's about rhythmic, uh, regular, and and breathing you're you're calm you're centered your voice is is soft and you speak clearly and slowly you don't raise your voice you um, even how your body position you stand not squared off with the person you stand off at an at a 45 degree angle um, you make eye contact but you don't stare you 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 know occasionally will will glance away, but only briefly, because that can also trigger the the escalated person as a sign of disrespect. So there's all these, you know, and some of them seem like such um, minor little things, but when you put it all together, um, it has incredible impact. Um, and, And really using that when, when they say something, you use reflective listening where like, I'm really upset about da-da-da-da. Well, I hear that you're really upset about such and such. Will you tell me more? Because you want to completely hear them and, and draw them out. And it might sound like that would escalate them, but really they need, you are there to help co-regulate what's going on with them. And that means by your calmness and you being interested in why they're upset and you're there to be a support for them, they will eventually go, somebody really cares about what's going on here. And I don't have to hold on to all of this myself. You know, co-regulation, someone- co-regulation is a very interesting thing because it's about being able to self-manage yourself if you're the person trying to de-escalate somebody else. Mm -hmm. But it's also important because when you're in these toxic or high stress duress situations, Mm -hmm. what can happen is this stuff starts to accumulate in you and you can be triggered up. 
Because if you're the person who's in responsible charge and something is happening in the circumstance that there is deep trauma and it's coming at you, mm-hmm. when you learn these talents of deregulation, you can regulate yourself, you can help others regulate. And then there's oftentimes a secondary or tertiary person, a second or third person in the room that oftentimes you don't even recognize it might be a child it might be a spouse it might be an animal that's you know going off because the hypertension in the room is going up so being able to do co-regulation means being aware of everything in the room that's going on right absolutely yes um being that was another piece to the de-escalation that i um I forgot to mention is that you always to position yourself so that you are uh, have an out if you need to. I mean, it's it sounds kind of like, well, does that mean you you don't feel confident that you can deescalate this person? It doesn't mean that. It means that we can learn the training, we can practice the training, we can utilize the training. But each situation is completely different, and not everything that you do works with every person. And so you still have that safety awareness in mind. And that's really important. So um, yes, always positioning yourself so that the person you're trying to support is not blocking an exit. Uh, Position yourself where, you know, you can get yourself to safety if necessary. So um, what I wanted to share about what, how this client used that, um, that, what they learned in their home situation is that um, they had one of their children um, that had had got had done had had written found a sharpie on the playground had written was upset about something and had written on the playground about how upset they were with the black sharpie on the playground equipment that's made out of this recycled plastic material. Well, another child on the playground came to the client and said your your little girl did did, did did this and this and this you know just telling on this on the child and so um, the client went to check um, which wasn't out of the ordinary it wasn't going to be like oh somebody came and got me to tell me you did something wrong but it was just like hi i just came to check how's how's everybody getting along do you need a snack because you wanted some water i brought a water bottle whatever and immediately the the little girl was knew she did something wrong was fearful of getting in trouble and so the body language was not making eye contact putting the head down, not wanting, to, you know, kind of looking around, not responding to, to the parent, the client. And um, right away, so these are words, though, that specifically wouldn't necessarily be used with an adult, but the client said that she'd learned from another um, workshop that uh, she attended. It looks like you're having some big feelings. Would you like, and, and very calm, very slow regulated breathing and very you know no no raised voice whatsoever mm-hmm. looks mm-hmm. like you're having some big feelings would you like to talk to me about it and put her arms out to give the child a hug and immediately the child brightened and ran over and hugged her legs and the client was like 
oh, cool. I'm so glad that worked. Because you know, it's... Go, ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Um, she was just delighted because like this was she'd not tried this before, but she would, had learned about it. But she already knew about the breathing and the calm voice and the, you know, acknowledging what was what they observed was going on with the child. Mm-hmm. So um, go ahead. You were going to ask something. Well, it's it's like it seems like something so little. And in this particular case, you're talking about a client who's dealing with a very young girl and Mm -hmm. you're talking about something very small. But if you Mm -hmm. can imagine that in a larger situation, let's say that you have an accident where you've got 10 or 15 people around it and they're all angry and people are wanting to get upset. And if you can walk in in that situation and bring calmness to it, you can de-escalate not just the one person who's in trauma, Uh obvious trauma, but you can de-escalate it for a dozen other people. And those people all learn how to de-escalate this kind of emotional situation that's climbing up and getting inflammatory. Yes. And what's really interesting, Joy, that I started to see with this um, client and how that could fast forward to the the client and the child's adult relationship would be if if at this point in that child's life she hadn't had an opportunity to work through and talk about her big feelings and have be felt heard seen and comforted when she after the fact she made a mistake as an adult if she did something wrong she would likely stay stuck in a escalated, I did something wrong. I'm really upset about this. I'm just going to blow up about it because I don't know how to handle this. I don't know who to talk to. I don't know how to talk to myself about it. So what you just shared about a situation where it's adults and it's a uh, multi-person situation, (sighs) The people that are escalated in a case like that are actually ones that didn't get their needs met as young children, because not everybody that gets in a wreck gets really upset. But you can pinpoint which ones that haven't, and you can you can assess pretty pretty clearly and pretty um, likely pretty correctly that those individuals did get the kind of support they needed on how to deal with these big feelings because they are even for adults they're big feelings you get in a wreck and it's whose fault did i do this oh my gosh what am i going to do and on and on and on but yes um it is a like you said the domino effect if you're able to get the most escalated person calmed because everybody else is going to be on edge too if that one person that's the most escalated and that's that's kind of a triage situation you look at who's the most escalated you go there first this is joy gilfillan with i change justice and we will return after the break thank you to our sponsors you can find links to them on our website at the restorativecommunity.org you can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. So welcome back to the call, Debbie. Let's talk about what this has to do with people who are dealing with 
you know, diverse abilities. They have challenges with mental illness or they have challenges where their body doesn't function in the same manner or, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you, how do you work with people in different situations that are not so easy to de-escalate just by addressing their emotional state? Thank you, um, Joy. And that's a really good point. And I, I recall not that long ago, I'm not sure I can find the link this quickly, but it was a beautiful example of a trauma-informed uh, first responder law enforcement. There was a young person, looked like a teen in the video, it was an actual video of this um, a teen probably on the spectrum, on the autism spectrum, and they were overwhelmed, having a meltdown, and they were laying on the ground, kind of flailing, and it was not in a safe place. It was, you know, in a roadway, and no amount of trying to talk calmly and softly to this young person was going to get them safely out of the roadway. And what this first responder did was absolutely brilliant. He got on the ground with this young man, laid right next to him. And right away, this young person was like, well, is something, is this person okay? That just like, you know, I mean, how unusual would that be to have an adult lay down on the ground next to you when you're having an episode, what his experience before that had been is people, you know, either yelling at him to get up or trying to talk to him calmly and softly, but he was just, he was overwhelmed. Now that is a perfect example of co-regulation because only putting yourself to an extent in the other person's position or even body placement in many cases, can make a connection like that. Well, and it so, was actually, it was a connection, but it was also an interruption. Mm-hmm. It was like somebody's going, wow, that's different. And mm-hmm. it, 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 in a way, it's called, a, you know, arresting the situation, stopping it where it's at, and allowing mm-hmm. the person a chance to regroup and consider something different. Exactly. Exactly. And so um, the situation did resolve. It took several minutes, but there was other um, first responders around so they could direct traffic to make sure that this situation didn't uh, turn into a tragedy from a, a, a car you know, running over them or anything. Um, and so it ended up working out. But what was interesting is that first responder didn't have any specific training in that specific Um, situation with a diversely abled young person, but intuitively knew that that was the best way to reach this young person. And so it was quite, it was quite amazing to, to watch. And they expanded upon this event and used it in some further trainings um, because it's, it's gotta be a case by case basis. It's gotta be, what works for the person, which brings me also to what in the diversely abled world um, for planning for care and support is called person-centered planning. And we have, 
that community has come to understand that in order for it to meet the needs of the individual, for them to actually want to participate in the support they're getting and benefit from it, it has to be something that is important to them. So I'm going to go back to this uh, first responder situation and say, however it happened, intuitively, the officer knew this, this was going to work. And to that young person, it was important that somebody get on his level to feel what he was feeling. So that worked for them. So, so that's really interesting. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you please, because I. Uh, the thing I was thinking about with related to that, I'm thinking about the amount of years that Gabor Mate has been studying the patterns of addiction. He wrote a book a long time ago called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Close Encounters with Addiction. And then yes. he did a lot of trauma and alcohol um, investigation and got into attention deficit disorder. Mm -hmm. And now he's talking about trauma and illness and healing in a toxic culture. That's the subtitle of that book, that book that you referenced called The Myth of Normal. Yeah. So it's fascinating how deep and how broad the impact of this kind of research can affect entire families, generations, entire lifetimes and relationships. And that is very much about the intergenerational trauma um, for Dr. Matei himself. Um, he didn't have a substance use addiction. He talks very openly about this on his interviews and in his book, many books, that um, he is, he was born in January of 1944. And so he was born into a world where everyone around him was very deeply impacted by the Holocaust. His own father was away in forced labor. His grandparents were at Auschwitz and were killed there. Um, so he, and his, he speaks that about his grandfather, who was also a family physician. So, um, there are our experiences that we have at a very young age that we don't even have a, a conscious memory of. But he shares the story about when he was two months old, that he was crying all the time. And his mother rang up the, the doctor and said, could you please come and see Gabor? He's crying all the time. And the doctor responded, well, yes, I'll come and see him, but I must tell you. All the babies right now are crying all the time. The babies don't know who Hitler is. The babies don't know about Auschwitz. They just know their mothers are stressed. And uh -huh. when the mothers are stressed, the only way the babies can interpret that is that the mothers don't, don't love them, don't want them. And so this started a long uh, process with Gabor uh, that um, he wasn't wanted or loved. And he shares that in his d adult life, when he started to think about what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be, he said, well, I'll become a doctor. They always want you. They want you when they're born. They want you when they die and all the times in between. And his practice and how much time he spent doing his medical practice, he was away from his family. When he was home, 
he didn't feel wanted. It was when he was away answering the beeper all the time. So his work became one of his addictions. Wow. Here again, very openly. So it it is quite the other one that he that he had, and he said he this this he had a shopping addiction. He would he once left a woman in labor to go shop for classical music. What? And yes, yes, I know. Lots of people shake their heads when they hear that. How in the world? He he had, would buy thousands of dollars of classical music. He never even listened to all of them. CDs. He, he had this favorite store. And then lied to his wife about where he was and how much money he spent. And That's interesting. It, it, yeah, it wasn't in the the actual getting it was in receiving it and it was in the act of acquiring it that he this something about this it, and that's where he talks about in the realm of hungry ghosts is that it was this internal thing that no matter how much he would get it was never enough he had to go get more and more and more and so for most people it might sound like an odd addiction but there are work addictions, exercise addictions, food addictions, all different types. And he speaks about rather than look at why the addiction, look at what that addiction does for people. What did they get from it? And so he'll, he goes into audiences and he says, is anyone willing to share what your addiction, what you got from it? And people would raise their hand. Well, it relief from anxiety. Um, others would say pain, pain relief. Um, others would say um, it made me feel normal, like I could talk to people. So what was fascinating about how he shared what he shared with his audiences was that all of these things. So is is relief from pain is feeling like you could talk to people and maybe that you were no longer lonely because you could talk to people or um, that it made you feel normal, uh, maybe accepted, whatever. Are any of those things bad things? No, they're things that meet human need. There was a need somewhere. So if you look at addiction, that it's trying to meet a need in someone, then rather than look at whatever the addiction is, look at how else can we meet that need? And let's uncover how that need was created, that it became unmet to begin with. And so that starts this other journey of discovery. So, so these are, this is layers after layers after layers. And originally you were going to say something about how to get this trauma-informed workplace toolkit or something. Give us the name of what that website might be that you could go check out okay. this trauma-informed yeah. workplace. Okay. I had just sent it as a link to as an email, but I'm going to go in and open it and I will tell you what it is. Um, it's called, um, and it includes information in this uh, introduction to the multi-page document that you can print and share. Um, it includes information about biocracy, but the website is C as in Charles, TIPP.org. And it's called the Trauma-Informed Workplaces Toolkit. And it is from a um, 
a campaign for trauma-informed policy and practice. So this is an organization that um, is very much focused on healing. Their their mission is to create a healthy, just, resilient, trauma-informed society where all individuals, families, and communities have the social, political, cultural, economic, and spiritual opportunities and support necessary to thrive. And their work is grounded in the acronym NEAR science, which is a combination of neuroscience, epigenetics, adverse childhood experiences, and resilience. So it's a wonderful website to go to. Um, I've I've emailed it to you so you're able to type it into the um, description about this podcast. So I'm I'm very I've looked at a lot of different uh, resources for trauma informed care, and I'm really of of the many dozens that I've looked through. Uh, this one is is the most comprehensive, and that I I feel is the most helpful. Excellent. Thank you so much, Debbie David. Are there any last minute comments that you want to make before we let the audience go on with their um, day? But well, it- just just one and thank you, Joy. Every day, no matter what we're doing, if we can engage with one another, families, friends, the, the checkout person at the grocery store, in a calm and responsive and respectful, friendly way, that creates its own domino effect. And it's one that will ripple out from there. That checker might go home and and smile at their kids or their husband or, you know, wife, whatever it might be, instead of being grumpy, just because one person took a second to say, you know what, I appreciate your helpfulness today, this, you know, it really mattered to me. We can do these little things and they add up to be big things. And that's what we all need to, to make an effort to do because that's how we, we grow and we nurture and we share. And it's about making the world a better, healthier, safer place for us all. So thank you. Thank you so much, Debbie. I appreciate your coming and have a great rest of your day. Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at therestorativecommunity.org. Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.